The Energy Gang is brought to you by Renasola America, a Tier 1 solar module producer and LED light manufacturer with a decade of experience in the clean tech industry. Renasola is your complete procurement provider of clean energy solutions. The company has a proven track record of being a partner for project developers looking to maximize their return on investments. Call 415-852-7421 to find your local representative or head on over to their website at renasola.us. For the week of July 30th, 2015, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Hey out there, welcome to the show. I am Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media in Washington, D.C., as always. This week, make the bad man stop. That is the title of a recent report on the financial mess that public coal companies find themselves in. We will look at how messy things are really getting for the coal industry. Then, new rules in California allowing utilities to bundle distributed energy systems to sell on the wholesale market have been crafted. We will discuss the implications, and we'll look at Hillary Clinton's ambitious new solar plan to round out the show. Let me turn to two people you know very well, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah, my co-hosts. Catherine is a partner with 38 North Solutions here in D.C. How are you? Fresh off a bunch of meetings, off the train? Yeah, well, actually, I flew this week uh, up to Dedham, Mass., to do this um, C3E Energy Ministerial Ambassador meeting with 25 women who were just amazing. We have always have a great time and just get a ton of stuff done, so it was really fun. Jigger Shah's in New York. He's the president of Generate Capital. Are you an ambassador to anything, Jigger? Well, I'm just curious, Catherine, did you guys put together a binder full of women? It was a total binder full of women, yes. <laughs> and two of these women had been on the podcast, so that was uh, that. yeah, Nancy and Lisa. We've got our own binder full of women here on the Energy Gang. <laughs> <laughs> our guest this week comes to us from Charlottesville, Virginia, where he covers coal markets and uh, coal companies in great detail for SNL. His name is uh, Taylor Kirkendall, and we're, we've invited him here to explain uh, just how rough things have gotten for the coal industry. Hopefully things are good for him, not rough for him. Taylor, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much. I'm, I'm excited to be on. Just started listening to the podcast and, and, and love it. Great. Well, I enjoy your writing quite a bit. Follow it very closely uh, because we are eager to learn about how these coal companies are performing. And we'll get right into the poor performance as of late. Since 2012, more than 40 U.S. coal companies have filed for bankruptcy. Gosh, it might be up upwards of 50 now. And the, the market cap of American public coal companies has fallen by half since last June. It's a bloodbath out there. Do you, do you feel more like a, a horror writer than an energy writer? <laughs> um, you know, and sometimes sometimes I do. And that's uh, I liked the reference at the top of the show when you mentioned uh, Make the Bad Man Stop. Um, it was a uh, an analyst's note that we came across um, and they're talking about a scene from Sergeant Bilko um, where the character was, you know, laying down, complaining about kind of a heavy bout of physical exertion he just took. And I, mean, I think that's a pretty good um, description for describing the coal industry. I mean, they've been taking a beating from their customers, the, the power companies that just increasingly prefer natural gas over coal on a commodity price basis. But now they've got all these other factors that are kind of coming in and, and, and pressuring them as well. 
So there, let's go through these factors. One, as you said, is natural gas, and then you have the increasing competitive uh, competitiveness of renewables, which is starting to have an impact. But mostly it's been the, the shift to gas so far. You have slumping demand for coal globally, and then, of course, all these regulatory pressures that are coming down the pike on the federal level. Uh, is there one factor that's been most influential, or are they all contributing equally at this point? Right, and I think it's hard to to separate those out because um, you know, utilities are making some pretty complex decisions. But I mean, I think the the natural gas, uh, low natural gas prices are the ones that are really surprising here in the near term. I mean, because you know, only a few years ago we were listening to these coal um, companies report their earnings calls, and they were saying, you know, hey, this low price gas environment can't last very long. Um, that prediction is not bearing out as quickly as a lot of them hoped that it would. But um, you know, then in the meantime, um, where they would have usually turned to put some of that coal um, in the international market. Um, those people don't want to buy their coal. Um, they, um, they're either supplying it themselves or they've um, kind of lost demand for that coal. Um, and then mean, in the meantime, you have these regulations that, while not immediately affecting coal, with the exception of the mercury and air toxics rule, which did have more of an immediate effect, it kind of does put this um, scary like specter over the industry um, These that, that there's not going to be a future demand for coal here in the U.S., um, all these things are combining, and then I mean, you've also you see these um, environmental groups have found some very creative ways to to challenge the the coal miners on the ground as well, not just at the power plant. So Taylor, you know, I think that people are constantly like, you know, trying to spin this one way or the other. I'd love to get your just rough ballpark analysis on who had a bigger impact. Was it low natural gas prices, or was it you know? the environmentalists, you know, consistent sort of, you know, barrage over the last 10 years. Right. And I think that that is really hard to quantify. And I, I would, I'd be hesitant to maybe put a figure on it. One of the things I think is kind of fascinating that we've seen recently is I, I really feel like when we first saw some of these regulations come into effect and, and the coal industry kind of started taking the, the financial pounding that it has the past couple of years, um, I, I feel like the environmental groups were really quick to say that it was natural gas. They didn't want to take credit for it, and I think that's changing a little bit now. They're starting to say, you know, you see the Beyond Coal campaign saying, we've retired this many coal plants. Um, and I think that to, to some, some degree they're right, but I think that the progress that environmentalists have made so far would have been very difficult to do without uh, low natural gas prices. I mean, um, one of the rumors that we're hearing now, right, is that the clean power plan is going to have a two-year delay. I think a part of the reason that, that you know we can kind of do the, the EPA maybe thinks that, that might be possible is a couple years back when this rule started to be developed, nobody thought this natu- low natural gas prices were going to you know stay as low as they were, and now it's starting to look like, you know, most analysts are saying, you know, they're another year or two out at least of, of low natural gas prices, so maybe it's okay, you know, if you do a delay. So I disagree um, with you, though, because, I mean, I remember when we were killing, you know, coal plants in Kansas and Oklahoma pre-2008, right? Natural gas prices were 5 6 $7 a million BTU, and we're still killing them because the 2004 coal plant in Wisconsin was so over budget that people were like, wow, coal is just getting expensive to build. What, what I mean, plant my, was that? Uh, I forgot what the name of it was. Mid-American that, That's coal one plant. that was under construction? Not- In 2004. Okay. They, it was one of the, you know, they've only built about six or seven coal plants since 2004, and all of those plants have been way over budget. You know, I think that one was $4 million a megawatt, and, you know, more recently the coal plants are coming in at $6 million a megawatt. But I think that... Um, you know, my sense is, is that for a new construction, coal is dead. 
And so now what you're talking about is the shift between existing coal plants to existing natural gas plants. But my sense is that's not what we're talking about here, right? The reason people's stock prices go down is because there's no future. And investors see that new coal plants are just impossible to build, not because of EPA regulation from the Clean Power Plan, but just because, you know, since 2004, coal has been too expensive to build. Right. And I mean, you're absolutely right that the that there is a really high capital cost for a coal-fired power plant. Um, I believe the argument that, that a lot of the coal industry groups would try to make is that, um, you know, if natural gas prices were to spike, you would have a problem with the fuel price. Um, but I, I mean, I think that the idea that natural gas prices aren't anticipated to go down as part of what kind of contributes to making that high price tag for a new coal plant um, even more, uh, sorry, even less attractive. Yeah, you know, um, Taylor, I ran in the early 2000s, I co-directed the American Bioenergy Association, and one of the things we did was try to get coal companies, and we had met with Peabody to talk about biomass co-firing, so, you know, trying to clean up coal incrementally by using biomass, and it kind of didn't catch on. Uh, Just recently, there have been articles from the World Coal Industry about trying to use carbon capture and sequestration plus biomass co-firing, but it seems to me that either they're switching out completely to biomass like they have done in Ontario or they're just switching over to natural gas. I mean, there's not, there's not sort of an attempt to, to clean up and possibly that's because of the economics, um, to clean up what they already have. No, I think you're correct there too. I think one of the the points that, um, and I don't know if you would ever hear many of them admit it, I think there was a real problem with innovation in the coal industry and kind of slow to accept that a couple years back. Um, I mean, right now you hear a lot of talk about clean coal um, and building some of those plants. But like, if you look back to, say, 2006 when the Department of Energy had these loan guarantees to try to create these carbon capture projects, um, actually one of the projects I did back in November, um, we submitted a FOIA request and found out that, you know, there were companies that applied to these plants. And the idea was trying to figure out, you know, well, why haven't any of these been built? Um, well, it turns out that almost all of the plants that were trying to be built when we uh, matched it to some of the announced projects were gasification product, projects. Um, and basically what happened was all these potential clean coal programs, um, almost none of them which were actually carbon capture projects, um, ended up being canceled by the company or withdrawn from the application simply because natural gas prices were so low that even with an $8 billion – or sorry, well, it wasn't all for one project – but even with a huge loan guarantee from the government, it just wasn't worth trying to build one of these clean coal projects. But the one thing I would say is on the coal innovation piece is that, I mean, this is something that they really should get beat up for more. I mean, when you think about biomass, for instance, much of the coal fly ash waste is toxic. And, you know, the, the fly ash that comes off of biomass is not toxic. You can actually sell that fly ash for lots of other purposes. And when you think about, um, you know, the, the total amount of fly ash, um, you know, you get like one-tenth the amount of fly ash from biomass than you do from coal. It just seems like when you look at the end-to-end value of replacing coal with biomass, even at a 20% level, it's shocking how cost-effective it is, particularly because we've got ginormous biomass facilities in the southeast that are you know, shipping biomass pellets to Drax in the UK. It, I mean, it just seems to me like our coal industry in the United States has their head in the sand. So there are a lot of different pressures that we've been talking about here, but one of the things that I wanted to discuss was bad business moves, right? Like, so Peabody Energy, one of the world's largest coal companies, lost a billion dollars last quarter. And that's partly due to not being able to be able to pay off debts after ill-advised acquisition spree. What's happening there? And why have some of the moves from thermal coal into metallurgical coal costed these companies? 
Right. So a couple years back, um, Met Coal Benchmark price was as uh, it got as high as three hundred and thirty-three dollars per metric ton. Wait, actually, let me let me stop you there because I didn't really we didn't explain the differences between thermal and Met Coal, and I think that's probably oh, sure. helpful. Right. So metallurgical coal, um, coal that's used for steel making, um, a lot of that is. Um, we, we see a lot of that sold to the export market. We don't make a whole lot of steel here in the U.S. anymore. But um, basically what happened was we saw that Met Coal benchmark price, which is kind of um, a price that's used for most um, people that are trying to strike a contract with each other, it was about $330 per metric ton. And when that happened, um, you saw these companies rush in the door to try to get as many Met Coal properties as they could. Um, I think a lot of people kind of had the idea that maybe this Met Coal market didn't have a ceiling. Um, well, it didn't take very long before that thing spiked down incredibly quickly. Um, we're now at, I believe, $93 per metric ton at the benchmark price, and almost um, nobody is able to make any money in that market. Um, but the global competitors, especially countries like Australia, they can compete a little bit better than the U.S., and so now you've got these companies that um, were hoping that the metallurgical coal market was kind of, kind of be the savior of this uh, structural decline of the thermal coal market, but they really don't have that market to turn to at all because they're, they're selling that coal at a loss. Um, and what really caused a problem there and why they have to keep making this coal at a loss is, um, I think, really most easily revealed when you looked at um, their, uh, their debt to EBITDA ratio, um, basically how much, how much money they owe versus how much they're making. Uh, Mark Levin from BBT Capital Markets um, pulled those numbers for 2014 and um, Kind of shocking is um, most of the companies they were right around one one x uh, debt to EBITDA, but by 2014 most of our companies were between three and fourteen. Um, you look at Walter Energy, the the first company to go and almost a pure play um, met producer, had a 195 times debt to EBITDA ratio. That's crazy. Yeah, uh, you know. But the funny thing for me is that in 2009, Booz and Company, which was split off of Booz Allen Hamilton and is now part of PwC was paid by Peabody to do a total assessment as to what they should do because Peabody had predicted that they were going to go out of business back in 2009. And Booz and Company's analysis showed that they should spend every single dollar of available capital into solar and wind and diversify their energy portfolio. And they literally just threw the report in the trash and didn't do anything. Wait, really? Yeah. I've never heard of that report or those recommendations. Well, it's not public, but Booz, Booz and Company you know, basically did this analysis that Peabody paid for and their board paid for that said, you know, look, there's no future in coal given where natural gas prices were going and given where the things were going that you really need to diversify right away with the cash flow you're making now. And Peabody just threw it in the trash. And that brings us to our discussion on Twitter yesterday when our uh, senior VP, Shale Khan, asked, why haven't these companies diversified more? And of course, you have some leaders that have tried to push into natural gas, but I think he was talking more about downstream renewables as well. Um, Why haven't we seen much diversification? And if some of these companies wanted to go into renewables anyway, do they have any advantages in their business that would allow them to do that? Or is it just so far outside of their core business that it wouldn't make sense? Well, just from a historical perspective, there are no large... wood companies from the 1800s that diversified into coal. There are no large coal companies that diversified into oil. And there are no large oil companies that are actually really materially diversifying into renewables. And it's just mindset, right? I mean, do they actually have an advantage? Absolutely. Think about tax equity. These guys have ridiculously low cost of tax equity in the oil industry or even in the coal industry circa 2009 because they were so profitable. 
Um, they could have used the tax credits themselves and made you know the same returns that Warren Buffett ended up making um, on those big solar plants that he bought, but they didn't. Right. Well, and I know you're talking more too about a, a transition from coal to say renewables, but um, and you don't see much of that in the industry. But you did see as two examples, um, Alpha Natural Resources. Um, they did try to get into the, the natural gas business and, and diversify. Uh, the problem there is again, though, they're, they're, they have so much debt, it's hard for them to take on any kind of new business other than the mines and infrastructure they already have in place. Um, and I believe they ended up um, monetizing a lot of the, the natural gas assets they were able to buy. Um, but as a better example. Um, Consol Energy, they never really did um, fully get um, highly debt levered, and we're watching them now very, very quickly become a natural gas company. I mean, just a, a year or two ago, you were looking at a company that was almost split majority coal, and now like most of their their income is coming from natural gas. Um, so there's a, a little bit of that, but again, it's you're right, it's not something that we're seeing a whole lot of. So where are we headed exactly? Uh, first of all, we've we've seen you know dozens and dozens of bankruptcies. Since 2012, the market cap of these companies has dropped off. Uh, you know, I, I have sort of expertise in, let's say, the solar industry, where I can see where companies are headed. I can see potential acquisition targets. I could see what would happen if things go terribly wrong for companies. But you know, I don't have the same sense of visibility for coal companies. I mean, how much M&A activity are we likely to see going forward, and, and how many more big companies are likely to go bankrupt? Right. I think we're that answer can vary a whole lot depending on how the market goes. But given that we can kind of assume that natural gas prices probably aren't going to spring back up, I think you're going to see some more bankruptcies. Um, I believe most people are, are seeing Alpha Natural Resources is almost inevitably going to go. Um, Arch Coal, highly likely. Um, I think what's important to remember, though, a lot of people kind of think of bankruptcy as, you know, you run in and you shut down all the, the, the mines that the coal company owns, and that's not usually what happens at all. A lot of times those are bought by smaller companies, um, even non-public companies. In the case of Patriot Coal, you've got Black Hawk Mining, um, the smaller miner in Kentucky, um, buying up their assets. And they did the same thing when James River Coal went, went um, bankrupt. Um, you've got this actually, this company's growing, and What's going to happen to them will depend on you know more of a medium term uh, market for coal, um, but obviously they're betting on on some sort of comeback. I, I think when you when you look at kind of the the future of demand for coal, there there's definitely some demand left out there, and that, and depending on whose forecast you look at, that might be decreasing slightly um, or decreasing rapidly. But either way, there's going to be a couple producers left, and I think the answer might be consolidation. If you look at say um, Murray Energy and Foresight Energy, uh, Murray recently took up a major stake in Foresight, and um, maybe it's coincidence, but this quarter um, that those combined companies are producing a whole lot less coal than they were producing before he took a major stake. Um, the idea being that somebody needs to step in, consolidate these companies, and pull back on supply, because I, I think at the beginning of this problem, when we started to see uh, prices go down and, and the coal market start to shrink, everybody's solution was to become the best coal producer. And I think now they're finally starting to admit that there's there's going to be there's only so much supply that can be in the market, and there's not enough room for all the players that are at the table right now. And I think yeah. globally, you're seeing a shift as well, where people saw coal as providing fuel for you know to enhance electricity service for people in poverty in developing countries. Now there was a big piece yesterday um, in the Guardian about the World Bank rejecting rejecting this entire notion, the climate envoy at World Bank saying it is no cure for global poverty, that that is a terrible argument, that in fact the opposite is true. So I think globally the demand is shifting as well. Maybe Peabody Coal lost a billion dollars trying to promote those lies. But, um, you know, I think that 
the one thing that I do want to make sure people understand is that coal is not going away, which is what Taylor was saying. Is that, you know, I think what's going to happen is that someone's going to figure out a higher value use for coal instead of burning it. It's extraordinary how you know human beings just love to burn these complex molecules. You know, a better way of of monetizing coal might be to use Craig Ventner's, you know, like bio, you know, bio approaches, and you know, use the coal as feedstock for bacteria, and then. You know, having them convert into fuels or other, you know, plastics or other things, and at a much higher price. Right, and that's not something we hear about a lot, which I th- I find interesting. Um, I, I grew up in West Virginia, not in the coal fields, but I remember hearing about kind of these alternative uses for coal, um, and that was kind of big back back um, back in a few, just a couple years ago. Even the coal companies, it seemed like you know, one day we're going to have these super value added products that we're going to be able to put out with coal instead of. Instead of just burning it, and um, that discussion seemed like it kind of vanished somewhat. Um, the most recent that I heard, I know the um, I think the Department of Energy is seeking a grant. Um, apparently, you can extract rare earth minerals from coal, um, but again, it's something that whenever I ask coal companies about that kind of thing, um, or ask some of the trade organizations, they really kind of don't know anybody that's working on that right now. Well, it's the secret. It's the dirty little secret for the oil industry. When you look at a refinery, almost all of their profits are made off of plastics and chemicals. They make very little profit off of gasoline and diesel. So you grew up in West Virginia. Uh, you're, you're in Virginia covering this industry on the ground. What's your honest take for how um, renewables advocates, environmental advocates, how connected they are to these communities that are really facing severe job losses? And I'm just curious, like how often you go into these communities to talk to people and we have these big intellectual and policy debates, but very often the the human face uh, doesn't get brought into it. And I'm just curious how disconnected or connected these groups are to the the people on the ground. Right. So these days um, through SNL, I'm I'm not actually out. too often in, in in the region, and um, Charlottesville's not it's it's far from the kind of the coal fields. But um, I've worked at papers, um, local papers, at both um, right in the middle of all this. Beckley, West Virginia, is right in the heart of the coal fields, and um, I think it's a really complex, nuanced debate that both sides really don't take it that way very often. I mean the the thousands of coal miners that have lost their jobs, that's real. That's a problem. Um, there's no alternative industry that's really there in those coal, um, coal fields, and that's largely a part of the topography and geography there, um, kind of leaving a lot of people to wonder if, like, maybe the sad answer is that that many people can't live in that region. Um, but then on the other hand, I mean, the effects of, say, mountaintop removal, um, breathing, you know, air that's not tr- treated properly, those are real effects as well. Um, I've talked to people on, on, on both sides, and I think they both have some – some legitimate complaints and concerns. As far as um, how connected are these, say, the environmental groups to um, to the, the communities, if I'm, if I'm interpreting right, maybe you're, you're thinking of this kind of concept where sometimes people in the region react to them as being outsiders that are just coming in to, right. to um, yeah. shut down. And whether their argument's right or not, I don't think that that's necessarily the case. Um, you, a lot of these activists are local. Um, you say, look at Maria Gano, um, Bo Webb. These are all people that grew up, like in these, like well, either grew up or currently live in these these regions. And I think their concerns are, are, are legitimate and heartfelt. They're not people that don't understand the communities. Um, unfortunately, so far they they haven't been able to offer the um, kind of magic bullet for what to put there instead. But I mean, I mean there could be an argument to be made that that's not their job. Um, but yeah, I do, I do think that I mean both sides of the debate are passionate about the issue, and I think that they they both probably have the best interest in mind. I don't think there's anybody that's not um, paying attention in this debate. 
Well, there's a recent story um, that Peabody had some environmental activists um, arrested and put in jail for demonstrating at a company shareholders meeting. And uh, Peabody is asking the judge to strike the lyrics of John Prine's Paradise uh, song from the record because the song written in 1971 somehow defames the the uh, coal company. And it, it does. I mean, it's pretty, you know, it is a very... Um, it, it's a song that really lays clear what what strip mining does and did in Kentucky. But uh, it's funny that they wanted the word strip from the lawsuit. Well, I, I've got that song that I'll play to close out this segment. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the one thing I just want to put from perspective for people is there's less than 30,000 people who work in the entire coal industry in West Virginia. And, you know, whether you're talking about solar only or you're talking about solar plus wind plus energy efficiency, our sector is is hiring over 10,000 people a month. And so, you know, the fact that 96% of all the electricity in West Virginia comes from coal, they actually do have a way to retrain these folks and put them into better careers um, if they actually put their mind to it. Right. And I'm, I'm getting a little bit out of my sector here because obviously I don't, I don't cover much solar, but kind of my understanding from some of the reports done by Marshall University, there was, there's places that are great for wind and solar in West Virginia. But it, even like on top of these reclaimed mine lands in, in southern West Virginia, um, those aren't the ideal places for solar panels. And if you do, you don't really have the in- infrastructure to deliver that electricity in the, to anywhere that needs it. And so while there, I mean, I think that there's probably jobs for West Virginia and solar, I think the, the problem that everybody's really having is how do you get jobs where these coal mines are at? And the problem with that is that these people only live there because there was a coal mine there. Well, you're one of the few in the coal industry. Or you're not in the coal industry, but you're one of the few tangential to the coal industry that actually has a has job security. <laughs> You'll be writing well, on this industry. <laughs> well, there's a couple coal reporters um, right now. I don't know uh, how many more they're going to need if we keep losing companies, but uh, hopefully I get to hold on. Well, Taylor Kirkendall is a coal reporter for SNL, and he joined us from Charlottesville, Virginia. Really appreciate you being on. Thanks for the insight. Hey, thank you so much. Have a great day. And to round out the segment, I've been asked by Catherine to play John Prine's Paradise, recorded in 1971, which details the environmental destruction that Peabody caused in Kentucky from coal mining. So here it is. Then the coal company came with the world's largest shovel And they tortured the timber and stripped all the land Well, they dug for their coal till the land was forsaken Then they rode it all down as the progress of man And Daddy, won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County Down by the Green River where paradise lay well, I'm sorry, my son, but you're too late in asking. Mr. Peabody's coal train is hauled in away. All right, this is the point in the show where we get to talk about our supporter, our sponsor, Renesola America. Renesola is a tier one solar manufacturer, but did you also know that it's a lighting manufacturer? Renesola manufactures and distributes fully certified lighting products for the residential, commercial, and utility sectors. You can enhance your project with Renesola LED lighting solutions for all applications. Not only will you save on costs through bundled offerings, you'll save on time too. Renesola has coast-to-coast warehouses featuring its products and over 32 local sales reps across the U.S. To find their products, to talk to a rep, or to scope out their services, call 415 
888-242-7421 or go to their website at renasola.us. We move over to an important change for grid operations in California. The state's independent system operator, the organization that manages the bulk power system, has created new rules allowing distributed energy systems to be aggregated and sold into the wholesale power market. California does allow aggregation today, but it's the first time such explicit, simple rules have been created, and it could be a new way to value solar, batteries, electric vehicles, residential demand response assets, anything that's connected to the distribution grid, and certainly a number of companies have been anticipating these rules. Catherine, we, uh, we, we touched on this briefly during our live show at Grid Edge Live when, when um, the independent system operator was considering them, but now we have final language. We have more clarity on the parameters here. Why is the California ISO rule so important, first off? Yeah, so it's kind of like the California's equivalent of the New York Rev that we have talked a lot about. So we're moving in a really good direction where when you do integrated resource planning, you're going to need to consider the distribution resources as well, not just the generation resources. So this is really important. And uh, seven or six of the utilities had to file um, what they were going to do in, you know, they were in each of their service territories, how they were going to view distributed side resources. Um, it allows the utilities to develop these sort of statewide planning tools to streamline interconnection, um, find the best locations for distributed generation, and and really quantify values that that they're bringing to the grid. Um, it'll be a little while. We're still early days and they're still going to be doing some demos and pilots to try to figure out how this is going to kind of spin out. But this is a great move in the right direction. But one of the big changes here is that you can now aggregate all sorts of different distributed resources together. Whereas before you could do limited aggregation as long as it was over a half a megawatt, but it all had to be the same resource. Now, if it's on the same it's like the same aggregation point, the same pricing node, as they call it. You can take all these different technologies, battery and batteries and solar and um, smart thermostats and or generators or whatever, and aggregate them all together. That's a big move, right? Yeah, and and that's that's kind of where we have to get more detail because it is unclear to me how exactly third parties and consumers, while while it, they're supposed to be, you know, this distributed energy resource provider is supposed to open up third parties and consumers to really being part of the system. Um, it, it, I'm still unclear how utilities are going to allow that to happen. Part of the reason is that there isn't as much data sharing and real-time substation and other data that's going to be made available to those folks yet. And that's that's going to be an issue because you can't really aggregate in a way that's very... Um, nuanced in real time and provides as many services as as are that you could um, unless you have the data from the utility to allow you to do it. So we're still they're still kind of working that out, and it'll be interesting to see what happens with the with the utilities sharing. This is sort of 1.0 stuff. Basically, California ISO is just trying to catch up to where the PJM is and allow people to bid stuff into the grid. And you know the people who are going to use this is not rooftop solar as the Green Tech Media article talked about, the people are going to use this as battery storage. And, I mean, those are the first guys that, all the guys who got SGIP rebate money who are basically doing demand savings for customers like STEM and CODA and Green Charge Networks, they're going to aggregate their batteries up and actually start bidding this into the nodes. It's not going to be a bunch of solar developers who say, oh, let's do merchant solar on people's rooftops um, and bid it into the California ISO. Not yet. 
But no, not, Solar City not have been next... talking about this. Yes, they. Solar they... City talks about a lot of things. Well, of course, a lot of these companies talk. Of their <laughs> well, we could say that about a lot of different solar companies for sure. But they are. They talk publicly about preparing for these rules, and they eventually want to have some sort of revenue sharing model for customers that are installing solar plus storage. But we're doing Obviously, our right now. On... What? A complete disservice to talk yeah. about that. These rules are really being what? designed what? for storage. It's a company that's anticipating market rules no, that no, no. believes that it can I'm... share revenues with customers. Why is that a disservice? It is absolutely possible for solar people to bid 100 kilowatt increments directly into PJM right now as well. No one's doing it. This is going to be for storage. Now, five years from now, can it be for solar? Maybe. And more likely, it's going to be for CHP and other technologies, right? So if you've got CHP and you're basically running it to maximize the heat load for uh, your customer, you've got excess capacity. You can run it more often and then sell the electricity into the PJM market. But this is not, this is not the, the boon for solar that everybody wants to spin the story to be. Yeah, I think what it's going to do, it's, it's allowing smart grid technologies, as you mentioned, that have been rolled out to try to allow flexible resources. And I would say it's more than storage. It's going to be efficiency and demand response and anything on the distribution side. I agree, solar's on a slightly different track. But I, I think in the end, it's all going to be part of flexible resources. And what the hope is that if you can get something going in California and you've got something in New York, then FERC will need to look at this because those are both also ISOs and say, all right, do we need to create a market for flexible resources that, uh, that values them in the same way that we do generation resources? I agree. And, you know, I mean, I agree with you completely that Nest thermostats, I mean, lots of stuff can actually be bid into this capacity. But I do think that this is California's attempt to actually join the 21st century because they haven't actually implemented the rules under that John Wellinghoff put in place under FERC. Yeah, well, and they have to implement these rules to give some of the behind-the-meter storage companies that are aggregating projects as part of the local capacity requirement some clarity here. Because they they could aggregate, but there were a lot of limitations. And now they've sort of broadened the language a little bit, expanded the node points that they can connect to. And this is helpful for the companies that are trying to help the utilities meet their storage target requirements and local capacity requirements. Yeah, and this will force them not just to have assets, but actually figure out how what the functionality is of them and how they can use all of the software and hardware to get to use those resources. Let's face it. Hillary Clinton's campaign has been fairly boring. She's overly careful. She's controlling of journalists and by most press accounts, uh, running as an incumbent and not really as a human. Uh, but we do finally have something exciting to talk about, and it's not her private emails. This week, Clinton unveiled a vague yet ambitious energy and climate plan that surpasses what any candidate has pr proposed thus far on the campaign trail. Her most specific goal is to boost renewable electricity to 33% during her presidency and to install 140 gigawatts of cumulative solar by 2020. We're at about 21 gigawatts today. Is the plan realistic? Uh, and some are asking, is it ambitious enough? And would the president be able to take claim for such a goal if it were actually achieved? Jigger, your thoughts on Hillary's solar goal? Well, I think the start, I just want to say that I think this is fantastic, right? I mean, you know, 500 million solar panels is about 140 gigawatts because they're assuming about 275 watts per panel. And that's much higher than Green Tech Media and others we're projecting for solar. So we have to give her a ton of credit for being bold and not, 
you know, um, providing some small achievable goal that, yeah, I mean, you know, it, she doesn't have to do anything. It for. basically doubles what we forecast by then. Yeah. So I absolutely think that that's the case. But but I do think that the part that bothers me is when you read the press release, it's positioned all wrong. The entire press release is climate change is really important. Therefore, we have to force the American people to install 140 gigawatts of solar, as opposed to the way I would say it, which is we've basically you know, led innovation in this country such that the cost of solar is approaching a dollar a watt, which is what the SunShot program was attempting to achieve. And because of that, we can actually cost effectively install the 140 gigawatts of solar and put 2 million people to work, largely people who have high school degrees, where we have a big shortage of blue collar work in this country. Yeah, it's really, this is really interesting because I was psyched that the first thing that came out of her about climate was for renewables. I thought that was great, that that was her starting point, that she wasn't starting with let's let's manage our fossil fuel development, you know, strategically or whatever. She started with renewables, which was really good. Now what she needs to do is pivot to, as you say, Jigger, how does this actually impact voters? And I think she, when a, what she lays out is powering every home in America by 2026 with renewables. That's votes. That's not, now when you talk about enormous amount, 140 gigawatts of solar, you actually have to do a lot of utility scale to make that really real. But if you look at where are all those opportunities opening up for new rooftop, southeast, rural communities, community shared solar, all of these different markets are all in areas that she needs to try to get votes. These are red states, a lot of them. And she needs to go in and then take that message home and say, all right, I'm talking to you. You guys can benefit from this. But she really does have to make it more personal, Jigger, as you say. Yeah, she, she finds herself in this classic bind that many candidates do. So she framed these uh, her climate plan around renewable energy investments. And the Washington Post came out with its op-ed this morning that said, well, she didn't really create that ambitious of a plan because she's just talking about sort of a small sector when it comes to overall U.S. carbon emissions. And she didn't create any targets for emissions drops or talk about a carbon tax or a cap-and-trade plan. So they criticize her for that. And then on the other side... I agree with your framing, Jigger, but here we are criticizing her when she rolled out one of the most <laughs> ambitious solar plans of anybody, the most ambitious solar plan of anybody. So, of course, she's going to find herself in this classic trap. Well, no, but I, I mean, that's why I said my first opening remark was a positive one. I, right. I just think that, that the way she's framed this is going to, it's going to guarantee that all 16 Republican candidates for president are going to be anti this plan. And that just like I we have an opportunity as an industry to be the Pickens plan of 2016, right, where both parties have to fully embrace our plan because it's really the only way to bring um, the jobs necessary at over $15 an hour that actually, you know, gets people back to work and, you know, and creates a prosperity that many of us remember from the late 90s. We're really it. We're the only way to do that. And, you know, and I just think that for folks not to pitch it that way means that we're deliberately forcing the other side to hate us, which I don't, I don't want that to happen. I love that. Solar is the Pickens plan of the 2016 election. Not just yep, solar, renewables. resource efficiency, resource solutions. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, water, you know, agriculture, there's lots of things that save people money that also are good for the planet. 
But I, uh, when I read the Washington Post editorial this morning, and they were saying, you know, she should she should say we should have a cost on carbon. You know, that would be the way to do it. I actually think that isn't a great. You know, that's sort of one of those arguments that is mushy that people voters don't get, don't understand how it impact them. So I think if she can take what she has announced and go in and talk to people about jobs and how it can impact them, that will be helpful. And it is only sad to me to think that this will then cause. Um, you know, the Republicans to say they hate it. Because I, I agree, I think everybody should be for this. Maybe you're for implementing it differently. Maybe you have different, you know, methods, of different tax codes, different kinds of things you want to push out from the policy perspective. But the fact is, like, we are creating thousands and thousands of jobs with solar and it's and other renewables and other clean energy. And, you know, that should be what people latch on to. If you're working for the Hillary campaign out there, Call up Jigger or Catherine. They will give you some advice on how the candidate should talk about this stuff. So one thing I was struck by were her other ideas for solving climate change. And I didn't find them all that ambitious because they just seemed to be like newly worded versions of what the Obama administration has already done. So there's the Solar X Prize, awards for communities to cut red tape that slows rooftop solar. I mean, isn't that a huge part of the Sunshot Initiative? The administration has been working on that for years. Uh, She talked about transforming the grid, and of course the DOE, the Office of Electricity, and the Office of EERE have been working extensively on grid modernization and resiliency. Um, There's this rural leadership to expand USDA programs for renewables. Like, that's been a huge part of the administration. So many of these things seem to be rehashes of what the Obama administration has already done. Yeah, but yeah, but Stephen, the main thing that the Obama administration has done that she has to do is to protect the clean power plan. That is our national energy policy. That will drive clean energy more than anything else going. And if she can protect that then it almost doesn't matter if she does a prize here and there. Yeah. And like, that's the biggest game in town. No, I don't think these are bad ideas. I think these are ideas that should be built upon and continued. I'm just saying for people like us who are sort of insiders in the industry and follow this stuff, we can't kid ourselves. This is not entirely new stuff. But yes, the Clean Power Plan is certainly, I think, the most important legacy of the next president. And if she can keep it intact, then... Um, that will be the single biggest factor for driving renewables. Well, I would look, I mean, I'd say more than that. Look, the clean power plan is the lowest common denominator. I think we all understand that EPA could have proposed something much bolder, but they wanted to try to figure out a way to get everyone on board. And that's fine. You know, I think this is different, right? This goes back to what you were saying before, Stephen, which was that Hillary Clinton plays things safe. What she's done here is play things safe. This is the largest wealth creation opportunity of our lifetime right? She does not believe that fundamentally. If she did, a bunch of us would actually recognize it through her rhetoric, as opposed to through the poll polling groups that she used to put this thing together, right? And I just think that whether it's actually using the U.S. Treasury Department to actually finally recognize um, small renewable investing, which, by the way, they don't do track keep track of that. So the U.S. Treasury Department doesn't know what people are investing in in renewables unless it's $100 million increments. So that needs to get fixed. Things like the SBA and the programs there that need to get fixed. The USA Jobs Act and the crowdfunding and how does that actually play into community solar and some of those things, right? I mean, there are implications across the government. The U.S. military and how the microgrids and a lot of the renewable energy there is going to get rolled out. The $80 billion of super ESPC money that's sitting there languishing because the Obama administration's only spent like $4.5 billion of it. I just think that this is 
very large. And it's something that could bring the country together and actually get her a ton of votes. But she's got to be bold on this. A clean power plan is not bold. That's just a baseline. That's the end of the show, folks. Let's hear something we do not know. Surprise us, Jigger. Well, Tom Steyer's group put out a great report recently. I mean, they have this clean energy newsletter. And, you know, they really, like, did a lot of number crunching and showed that um, that solar power is producing about 860 jobs per lifetime megawatt hour of production, whereas, you know, natural gas is about 103 jobs per lifetime megawatt hour. Um, and, you know, that about one in every 80 jobs created since the financial crisis has come from the solar industry. That's pretty cool. Wow. Catherine, surprise me. Well, I'm going to go with the not bold approach that Congress seems to take, which is that... Uh, I'm not Senate surprised. Ener- yeah, Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee passed out today their Energy Policy Modernization Act of 2015. Um, the cleaned up version isn't out yet, but there's quite a bit for like smart grid, um, distributed generation, storage... Um, not anything really bold, nothing game-changing. There's nothing explicitly for solar or wind. I mean, some of the wins are that nothing bad happened with net metering, not purple reform or the Federal Power Act. None of that stuff was opened up, so that was good. Um, It's not going to change our federal policy. It might nudge it a little in some of the right directions, but but they're doing something. Well, I'm going to talk about Trump. Who doesn't love talking about Trump? Well, the uh, media is in turmoil trying to figure out how they should cover the candidate. He recently released his financial disclosure forms. And what do you know? He owns $100,000 in stock in NextEra, which is one of the biggest owners of wind farms in North America. I think the biggest owner of wind farms in North America. And of course, um, Donald Trump has been building this golf course in Aberdeen, Scotland. And there is a proposed 11 turbine offshore wind projects there there that he's been fighting and has called illegal. Uh, That project is moving forward. But yet another little piece of hypocrisy from Mr. Trump. Well, it's not it's not unlike, you know, the late Ted Kennedy who didn't want to see wind turbines from his from his house. Right. I mean, you know, you can imagine Trump just doesn't want to see wind turbines off of his golf course. This is true. Just a couple words really quickly about another story. The Clean Energy Leadership Institute, which we have talked about a couple of times is now open for applications for the Fall Fellowship. And that is a fellowship here in D.C. They bring together some of the brightest young folks in the clean energy industry to sort of learn how companies are evolving, how the markets are evolving, uh, to learn from each other, to go to seminars. It's a fantastic program. And I know that a lot of young folks um, who listen to this show have applied and so I wanted to spread the word again that applica- the application process is open and it will close on August 15th. And Sealy uh, recently held its first fun run here in D.C. to raise money for the organization. I mentioned that on a show a few months back. And uh, a big shout out to Grant Klein and Isabel Ricker who tied for first place in bringing in support for the organization. So nice job to them. Applications for Sealy's fall program are at cleanenergyleaders.org. Check it out. The Energy Gang is produced by Green Tech Media and supported by Renesola. Thanks to Renesola for their support. To learn more about the company's LEDs, solar panels, inverters, and bundled packages for installers, head on over to renesola.us. Greentechmedia.com slash podcast is where you'll find all our episodes. This is number 96, and you can get 95 more at our website or on SoundCloud. 
We are counting down to episode 100. Catherine, have a wonderful end to your week and weekend. Are you in the Adirondacks next week? After next week. I keep messing this up. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. We'll still be around. Congress doesn't go on recess till after next week, so I have to hang in there. All right. Uh, Jigger, are you in Maine next week, or am I getting that one wrong, too? Yep, I'm leaving on the 14th, so I'm okay. around next week. All right. Great. Well, we will catch you from D.C. and from New York. Looking forward to it. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of GreenTechMedia.com. We will catch you next week. Mm-hmm.